to The Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee, and this is The Truth in This Art Beyond. We're in a Big Easy. I'm, I'm the Big Easy. I, I was saying that a lot the last time I was down here. Uh, and today, I'm excited to be in conversation with a writer, editor, teacher, poet, living in New Orleans, uh, the follower of pop culture, and a lover of music, film, and comics. Uh, his debut novel, The Ballad of Perilous Graves, is out now uh, through Red Hook. Please welcome Alex Jennings. Welcome Hello. to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for making the time. Let me give you a little bit more seasoning on you. I, I like that seasoning because we're in New Orleans. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, starting out, and I'm, and I'm glad we're, we're here. I think it's something that has a little bit more uh, complexity, a little bit more like juice when you're doing it in person versus the sort of like online, hey, let's chat yeah. in the middle of playing Sudoku or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So as we start off, um, I want to like get some of your background. If you could share a bit of your background and like maybe just something that comes to mind that influence, just to give that taste, something that comes to mind that influence what you're doing today. Okay. Um, well, my dad was a foreign service officer, so I grew up around the world. Um, but we were based out of Columbia, Maryland, so that's where I spent the most time in my childhood. And, uh, you know, that's where I fell in love with comics and science fiction and all of that. And uh, that's had a major influence on me. But my dad used to listen to jazz on WPFW all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really just kind of filtered into my life the same way his reading uh, fantasy novels to me and my little brother did when I was a kid. Nice, nice. Um, I think I had the dad thing there too a little bit because there, there is some humor. There are, like even now, right, as I was talking a little bit about the movie review podcast I do, mm -hmm. it's almost all like cheesy action movies. You, you can almost imagine how many times Van Damme pops up. Oh, yeah. And I'll, I'll say I had the, the crowning achievement or moment was having my dad be super shy on a podcast with me, by the way, <laughs> talking about Double Impact. Oh, yeah. Literally, it's just me talking for an hour, and he's like, yeah, that's wild, right? <laughs> and I was like, yo, you're super shy right now. But it was that full circle moment, and I think being able to see like where those influences come from, right. especially when you have a sibling. I have a younger brother, so I definitely get it. Double Impact. I haven't thought about that movie in many years. Double the Van Damage. Yeah, yeah, it sure was. <laughs> So, what, what are what are some of the things that come come to mind like growing up? Like, as I was touching on a little bit, you're you're a pop culture guy. So, what were some of those things that you were into growing up? Um, specific comics, specific movies, cartoons, or what have you? Music, or what have you? What were those things that were? This is Alex's thing. This is my thing. Well, when my older sister first taught me how to read when I was like four, um, the first thing that I picked up was. The issue of Uncanny X-Men, where Cyclops is convinced that his wife is Jean Grey back from the dead. And uh, this was the issue where Madeline Pryor finally uses her telekinesis to hold back his eye beams and confirms his suspicions. And like at the time, I'm reading this, I'm four years old, and like there was a lot to it that I didn't understand, but I found it immensely compelling, and uh, I still think about that issue. 
is is that the one I'm, I'm from, for some reason and maybe because uh, I always think about the visual right because mm-hmm. uh, I, I wanted to be a, um, a comic book artist when I was a kid so I always go with the visual and I would imagine you're hmm, I go with the writing <laughs> um, was that the one with like the face like that like her eyes were very just like stark Madeline's character yeah yeah I, I remember that issue yeah so Let's 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 dive into because I like to give that sort of the appetizer portion of the pod. Mm-hmm. Let's dive into the main course. Every, everything goes in that way for me. Everything goes in that way, especially because we're down here. Uh, dis- describe your your current work. I gave sort of the the cut and paste, the the chat GPT sort of introduction. Right. But describe your current work, and I have some separate bullet points under that. But I at least want to start there. Um, okay, so the Ballad of Perilous Graves is. A sort of black exploitation, Pippi Longstocking adventure, set in a version of New Orleans where music is a kind of sorcery, mm. and nine very powerful songs have escaped from uh, Doctor Professor's enchanted piano and manifested around the city as colorful street spirits. And so, my title character, a failed magician named Perry Graves, as well as uh, my Pippi character, who's super strong, uh, have to capture the songs before the city ceases to exist. Yeah. That's kind of the Cliff's Notes version. I mean, as you're describing that, my face is turning into more of a Cheshire Cat smile than I was expecting. It sounds amazing, so shout out to you. And this is your debut. Yeah, well, yeah, it's my debut novel. I had a short story collection some years back and, you know, various short stories, but... so. What was it within, and, and I think you, you touched on it a bit, like kind of, you know, I, I barely know how to read, but learning <laughs> learning how to read at a young age, what have you, and having that and having literature be a, be a thing. So talk about, like, kind of what brought you to, I want to work on previously, the you know, short stories, collection of short stories, and now, like, Perilous Graves. Tell me about, like, what was it that drew you to writing and, um, and, and getting into this sort of work versus, let's say, other creative interests you may have had? Um, I mean, there were a few major factors. One is that my father used to read um, fantasy novels to me and my little brother every night. Mm. And, uh, you know, he read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings series to us. And, like, I've talked about this in other interviews, but one night we're reading uh, through that book, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, and my dad stopped and put down the book and he just said, I wish there was a fantasy novel where everybody's black and the darkest, blackest one is the hero. And that really stayed with me, especially Mm. since in Tolkien's work there's a lot of black equals evil imagery uh, and like in some of the old illustrations, the orcs actually look like black people. Yeah. And uh, so my work has kind of always been in conversation with that. And then when the idea for The Ballad of Perilous Graves occurred to me, it seemed the best and most natural way to sort of interrogate those ideas and uh, give my dad the book that he had asked for. That's that's great. That's really cool. Um, and I think you know being able to play with some of these ideas, like you know, going back and not saying, I guess, what at least what I'm hearing. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think when 
we consume something, we're, we're interested in something, we're familiar with something and we don't see ourselves represented or we see ourselves represented in a way that feels really wild. Right. It's like, all right, how do we respond to that? Do we just get tight about it, get angry and get black man high blood pressure? Or do we do that move of like, no, I'm going to put out something that's really good and right. it's going to be almost a response to it. It's not a diss track to it, but it's a response to it. Right. And because I know that other people recognize that and, and feel that. Yeah. And it became a response to like multiple works on multiple fronts. Mm -hmm. Like it was very important for me to have uh, a trans character who's also wielding extremely powerful magic. Um, just because there's been a lot in the news uh, of the field recently about transphobia from prominent authors mm -hmm. and you know some of my favorite and most important people in my life are trans and while it's not my place to tell trans stories yeah. that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be represented in my work so that that's one of the reasons why one of my deuteragonists, Casey, is post-transition. It's not a transition story, yeah. but he's also uh, reclaiming this magical power that he's he's ignored for many years. And uh, you know, there there's some people dear to me that uh, I used as models for that character. That's great. Um, there's a. <laughs> It's funny when you use people as models that are close to you and you're like, how can I capture all of the things? Not just like the, the, the sort of top level, how do we bucket a person or what have you? This person's black, this person's this, this person's that. But like, what are their quirks that pop up and how do right. you like sort that? And yeah, you know, I was uh, talking yesterday with um, with a friend about this this cat comic I did mm -hmm. and the cats and the lead, all the characters in it are like me and my friends. And it's like, if you read it close enough, he's like, yeah, that's absolutely him. And it, it's something about that. And, you know, having, having those moments. So talk about, you know, a bit about sort of the writing process, the, the drafting process. Like, what was that like? Because I hear about people putting together, and I'm, and I'm touching on character, because people put together, like, what is it, um, a character Bible and mm -hmm. all of that sort of stuff. So talk about what your process was, was like bringing this to life and, if you will, share a few of those sort of influences that pop up. Well, I originally conceived the book as a comic. And uh, so one of the things that I did was sit down and write out a cast of characters, uh, including like what the visual references for them would be. Mm. But uh, at the time, I had a hard time finding a, uh, an artist, and so I decided to just go at it as a novel. Um, but I think because it started off so visually, that visual element stayed with it the entire time. And uh, it was a long process, finally, you know, getting it to market and getting it out. It took me about 10 years, all told. Wow. Um, and I think that's mainly because I misunderstood the book when it first occurred to me. Like, not only did I think of it as a comic, but I thought of it as something light and quick that I could get out um, while I was focusing on my real work. Um, but of course, over time, it kind of became the great work of my life up till now. And uh, that's a very good thing, but sometimes it was, it was very heavy. Mm. 
uh, especially once I realized that my title character was a version of my father at that age, and uh, I knew what I was going to have to put him through, and so, you know, I would I would give up for months at a time. I think the the longest was those nine months after I realized that Perry was my dad. Uh, but in the end, we managed to do it. I think like the work not just grew the book, but also grew me into the writer that I, I needed to be in order to have written it. And uh, it's been great for that. So if there was, and, and, and I'm not speaking in terms of, and, and thank you for that, by the way, I'd always like to you know, get that, that, that feedback because I think it makes for folks who are going to read it, folks who are aware of it already and who have read it already, having that sort of extra la layer of complexity there. It's like when you watch, you're, like, you're familiar with, let's say, 96 bowls, I'm going to watch the last dance. Right. Now it fills in these gaps, you know? Um, so if there was like one or two to three like specific like references, like that's absolutely this, you know, that pops up in your, your work, what would it be? It's like, I love Animaniacs. I definitely made this person right. <laughs> exhibit those traits. Well, I mean, well, there's Pippi Longstocking. Yeah. Um, for sure. Uh, that, that kind of came out of the stories in the news and, and picked up by word of mouth after I moved here in the summer of 2006 mm. about kids forced to return to the city without their parents and kind of fend for themselves. So that immediately made me think of Pippi and, and her cast of characters. Um, but then there's also a lot of New Orleans history and lore, especially as it pertains to music. Yeah. Um, like Buddy Bolden is mentioned and um, you know, the book is largely informed by a lot of the, the legends that sprang up around Buddy Bolden. Like, um, I, I know there were like legends that he could blow the rain back up into the sky. So that immediately made me think like, okay, well, what if he could really do that? <laughs> how would that be possible and how would that work? And so the whole magic system grew out of that. That's, that's, that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, Definitely, as I was sharing a little bit before we got started, because technically it doesn't exist, it's pieces of it out there. When you have places that, like, I look at New Orleans, where we're recording this, and where your, you know, influences within your, your, your novel, it, I look at it as a portal. I look at different places as portals, and I think that there's lore, there's different things um, that are attached to a place, and it's like, why isn't this used as a backdrop in, in, right. in these ways? It doesn't have to be the typical, you have saxophone playing and all of that. It's like, no, that's absolutely a part of it, but there's so much more. And coming as a person who is from Baltimore, you talked about you know Columbia and being around proximity to Baltimore, it's a lot of that that's there that is just untapped. Right. So talk a little bit about what is, what is SFF? Okay, speculative fiction, like that's kind of an, un, an umbrella term for science fiction, fantasy, and horror that's imaginative in nature. Mm -hmm. Like not all horror is speculative, like you can have very uh, reality-based horror, um, but it's just, it's just kind of a broad term. Yeah, so why was it that that genre, like, like, in what ways do you really dive into some of the hallmarks of genre and of like, you know, sort of SFF versus 
like I'm gonna do my own thing with this. I'm gonna make my own sort of like take on it because you know when I talk about you know as I was joking a little bit earlier this this is a, a podcast this is the interview but really I try not to make it like right. the typical so tell me about your work you know I want to know like more about who the person is behind it what's the thinking behind it as well well um, for me speculative fiction is kind of my natural native tongue mm-hmm. um, it just really ties into the way I saw the world as a child, like with a lot of magical thinking, and uh, it even relates to my religious upbringing. Mm. But uh, it wasn't until my family was living in Paramaribo, Suriname, that I discovered the work of Octavia Butler, who was incidentally the first author that I met in person whose works I had read. And just looking at the way she interacted with the field, the the trails that she blazed in the field, and being told by her to apply to the Clarion West Writers Workshop um, and taking that advice, it's just, like I was originally trained as a poet, Mm -hmm. and I wrote a lot of realist short stories back when I was you know, in undergrad at, at Evergreen State College. But over time, the speculative began to seep into my work, and I found that it just offered me a broader palette for metaphor and for figuration. So my approach to speculative fiction is always to locate the real mm. within the tropes and uh, within the techniques and use those to illuminate the human condition as it's lived in the here and now. Um, Not everybody does that. I don't think that's something that's necessary per se. I just found over the course of my development that that's necessary for me in order to get anybody to care about my work. Um, And and, you know, it's, it's become very natural to me. So yeah, speculative fiction, like it's it's really my first love. Are there, are there like any? Let, okay, let's. Let, I'll put it this way, because because it's gonna be it's gonna sound similar, and so when I think of what type of storytelling, just broadening it out in that way, I always go to like if someone's like, "What are you aiming for? What, are you, what is the style?" And it's like it's like Atlanta, you know. That's what I want to go for, mm-hmm. right? It's like there's some quirky, weird stuff, but it looks like hyper real in spots. And it's like that's the the visual language, mm-hmm. but sort of the way the storytelling is like we're gonna go very left at times. That's the thing that really kind of interests me, and I'm not sure like what genre that might be, but I think that there are certain allowances if that's sort of the language that we're speaking. I think if we're staying within that. Are there certain allowances that you feel like, all right, this is going to definitely be the genre for me specifically? Like, let's say if you continue and there's going to be a whole series, like there's going to be 10, 15 or what have you, books or what have you of, of, of the series, let's say theoretically, is, do, do you feel like it stays within this set genre and there are certain allowances that you're like, this is definitely where I want to stay at or do you want to broaden it um, in a way like, you know, and this is a very long sort of version of the question, but do you remember at this point where this terrible movie, uh, New Mutants, came out? No, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And 
it's like, oh, this is not a superhero movie. It was positioned like it was a horror movie. Right. And I was like, there's something interesting that you have horror. You have horror as the theme and in, in some of the things that are in it, but really, it's a superhero movie. Right. That has this as the thing. It's like a superhero movie hybrid to horror, and it's something about that that works because you still need to have those allowances of a superhero movie. Well, for me, like one of the things that always frustrated me about superhero movies is that. For a long time, they treated superheroes and comics mm. as a genre unto themselves, <laughs> but they're not. Like they're they're tropes that can be plugged into different genres. Like so, I had always wished that, you know, the Daredevil movie would look more like Sleepers and like have that kind of feel yeah. to it, since it's in Hell's, Hell's Kitchen. Kitchen and all that. Um, and it, it's nice to see things branching out at least on the fringes so that you can have like a very horror inspired superhero movie or you can have something that you know looks a lot like the Charles Bronson Death Wish movies or Dirty Harry or something like that. I don't know why I'm coming up with like the most conservative examples. Yeah, that, I was like, what direction <laughs> are you going, bro? No, but but I, but I like that because it's something about it where you, you ask, people ask questions like, how do you make something and keep something fresh mm -hmm. when there's more and more talk about fatigue? You almost have to do the anti version of that movie that has that in there. Right. And in those instances where, let's say, and this is not, it's, it's related in terms of media, right? Um, that's why, like, when, let's say, Logan or when the first, you know, Deadpool movie came out, or maybe to a lesser degree the second one, it's like these movies are rated R, so it's kind of going against right. what that, in hyper-gory, especially like Logan or what have you, going against what that sort of, this is going to be PG-13 and everyone's going to win at the end. Right. It's going to be a big bad that's an old guy in, like, a CGI suit. But, like, with those movies especially... What they're doing a lot of time, a lot of times, is hewing closer to the source material. Mm -hmm. Like Logan felt a lot like the first solo Wolverine miniseries in the comics. Mm -hmm. It was very gritty. It was violent. It was very down to earth, even to the point of his healing factor being depressed and he's like old and creaky yeah. and like the X-Men have fallen apart and like everything is so bleak but it it makes sense and it feels real especially especially if you're someone with a marginalized identity like seeing the way progress can feel like it's being rolled back right in front of our eyes um, and I, I think Infusing those sort of real-world themes and ideas and borrowing from other subgenres is exactly how to keep a subgenre fresh. Mm-hmm. I agree. 100%. See, I'm glad you're saying it, not me, because you know, I'm not qualified to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I got, I got this question here. Um, so how do you approach, like, creative goals you touched on a little bit earlier so that like the length and the, the scope of bringing your novel together how do you approach like creative goals for instance let's say you might have to you, you might want to write you might aspire to write let's say a thousand words in a week or what have you I don't, I don't know what a goal is for writers but you know let's say I want to do 200 podcasts in a year mm -hmm. you know if, if you fall short do you get bummed of that and say all right I need to really hunker down or whatever or if you exceed that number, let's say you do 1,500 words in a week, do you go, hell yeah, and I can coast for a little while 
tell me about like how you approach your sort of creative goals and having that roadmap of I want to I want to complete this I want to complete this one at a certain time. How do I? What does that look like? And how do you approach it? Well, there's a there's a few elements to that answer. One is like I treat my creative goals on the macro level and on the micro level the same way. Mm. Like personally, I don't focus on word counts. The only thing that word counts are helpful for, for me, is like knowing the ballpark of where I want to bring a story in uh, word count wise. Um, But I don't put those kinds of goals on myself on a day-to-day level uh, because there will be days when you know you can do 1500 words in a sitting and there are other days where you labor over one sentence all day and you still don't feel like it's finished by the time you're done. Um, So I try to just have ideas that I can sort of hang my hat on and um, my idea for what my creative goals are on a day-to-day basis is if I average three hours of writing a day in a week, like that's a very successful week. Um, So like, and, and I don't even really like feel bad if I can't do that because there are all sorts of things that come up like various creative projects, interviews. Um, You know, I'm also the program director for Dream Foundry's Con or Bust program. So like I'll have to do administrative work for that or like uh, prospect with people or grant grant applications, all of that. Um, So it's more about do I feel like I'm moving in the right direction and how quickly? And then so at the macro level, the way I approach my creative goals is not so much I want to publish a book about this or that, but it's I have an idea of what I want to do. So I want to do three fantasy novels here or I want to... I'd like to be in the writer's room for a TV show someday, something like that. And so when I look at what's happening in my life and in my career, like if something specific doesn't come to pass, like I don't feel like I'm failing at it. Um, Yeah. That's that's good. That's good. Because... Yeah, I've I've tried to look at it as as well and, and having like not to the number because I think we get really caught on numbers a lot right? right and it's like oh I need to do this many podcasts I do way too many you know in terms of I can get I can knock out a lot of work and I think that they're good and interesting and all of that stuff but I can volume is a thing right I'm an active it's like it's like Sam Jackson it's like how do you do so many movies it's like I'm a working actor right it's like I'm a I'm a regular podcast I'm this is not you know playtime for me but at the same time, having sort of these other goals that extend out of it, like the podcast is one part of what the overall package is. Mm-hmm. And going to one of the things you had touched on about like certain other obligations you may have, it's just like, all right, I need to put a couple of hours aside to work on this stuff. Like this actually isn't the work part of this. Right. The prepping for this is the work part. Right. This is the actual fun part. This is the in-game part, not the practice. We all hate practice. Where's Ellen Iverson? Give me my cornrows. It's it's sort of that piece. And I think one of the things I look at is like, all right, 
you know, what are the other things? What are the pluses that I can add to diversify the stuff that I can do? I'm solid on podcasting. All right. Do I want to do a video podcast? That's a whole new skill set. Do I right. want to moderate panels? Do I want to go to conventions and do that? And adding that is like a sort of next skill set to it. That's the way I try to approach it. And I think it's definitely macro, like within this year, what are the things that I want to do? Right. And looking at it maybe almost from a, a quarterly standpoint. Mm -hmm. What is this quarter? What's this going to look like? What are the themes that I want to pursue? in this you know, particular work or have you, and how am I gonna present that? Does that work better as a podcast, or does that work better as maybe something else I'm interested in? Right. Um, so I got, I, got, I got a bunch of rapid fire questions for you, by the way. No problem. So I got this one last real question, and, and, and I wanna think more of like, just the sort of overarching. How is like being down here, and I think I was telling you about some of my aspirations, how has being down here in New Orleans like served you from a creative standpoint, whether it is how you approach creativity, whether it is you being in company of other folks who are creative, you know, you can run into a musician, a chef, it's almost like that bad joke about going to a bar, a right. musician, a chef, and a writer. <laughs> well. The short answer is that being down here in New Orleans has totally reconceptualized the underpinning for all my creativity over the years. Like, this is where I built the major part of my process. This is where I learned to seek out uh, a creative community and and interact with other creatives. Like for. For about five and a half years, some friends and I ran a literary reading series in the, in the uh, St. Rock neighborhood called Dogfish. And so that was a place where people could come together and like discuss their creative projects. Um, we would bring in features to read from their works. You know, we, we'd have drinks and snacks for everyone and just put together a, a, a convivial space where these ideas and practices were valued and people didn't feel so alone. And at the time, I didn't think of it as, oh, I'm doing this to grow my own creative work. Uh, it just seemed like a really cool project to be a part of, um, but it had, the, it had the added benefit of helping me understand what community is, what I want out of it, what I'm able to put into it. And, uh, you know, I, I'd already been selling stories professionally before um, that reading series started. Yeah. But one thing that it helped me understand was that working in my field is about more than doing the solitary work, mm. sending in submissions and getting those submissions accepted. It's about being a good citizen making sure that the opportunities that were given to me and the help that came my way are paid forward to people coming behind me or people who are contemporary with me. And it, it just helped me forge a new outlook on my work and my life as a whole. Uh, and that, that's true for a lot of things that I've done in this field. Like for instance, I read Victor Laval's novel Big Machine uh, some years back and it totally changed my life. It, it changed how I related to the city around me. Mm -hmm. It helped me understand that people who are despised are often 
pushed in the direction of becoming despicable, you know? And like before I read that, I felt like I was very much an outsider living in this city, like observing it from without. And, you know, Victor's work convinced me to integrate myself more fully into the fabric of my city. So I started talking to my neighbors. I started spending time with them. I started understanding like their lives and their histories better. And that eventually made it so much easier for me to write my book realistically and for me to set things in this city uh, the way I do. And I'm, I'm grateful for all of that. And then there's also the fact that at its very heart, New Orleans is a portal city. Congo Square, right down the street, is where the spirit of jazz first entered the world. And there are multiple great American art movements that had a large part of their genesis right here in the city. Um, you know, Matassa's Records, which now seems to be um, a, a voodoo shop, uh, is right on the edge of the French Quarter. Like so much history yeah. and so much spiritual power is concentrated here that I feel like even just stepping into the city for the first time was sort of like putting my hand on the third rail. And like it, it, it helped me get out of my own way and allow these larger forces to sort of translate themselves through me. Yeah. Um... That's, that's that's great. That's I relate to that. Like I, I, I every now and again I call it like the creative Holy Ghost. Right. And you know there's certain places that you know I just feel like imbued with a certain sense of I want to create something. I want to do something. And it's almost like these are the New Orleans tapes. Right. You know, which sounds like a horror movie, by the way. Yes. <laughs> could be. Could be. So so let me let me go into these real quick. These um and that's a good space for us to kind of stop at the real questions and get to the weird questions. Um, some weird. Some people call them the half-ass questions. Okay. Or the BS questions. Um, so I got five rapid-fire questions for you, and as I'll say to everyone, don't overthink them. Okay. Here's the first one. Aside from writing, what are three things you could do with a pencil? Oh. I know. I know. Well, you can snap it in half just for the sheer uh, joy of destruction, I suppose. Wow. Um, you can, well, that's technically writing to mark on a wall where you're going to put uh, you know, a piece of art or hang something up. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that I just did in my apartment, was hang up all the art that I've been sitting on for like a year. Um, and this also falls under writing, but like fill out the like sushi menu where you decide what you want. <laughs> nice. like they always have those golf pencils. I love that. But another thing is drawing. I really like to do pencil drawings. Um, I'm not great at it, yeah. but like I also wanted to be a comic artist growing up. It's simpatico. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say destroy writing. Like I could erase it. <laughs> but that is true. Um, or use it as a weapon. Also true. Because uh, what, what, what's the thing that, uh, I forget what it was on, maybe, uh, I forget what, what cartoon it was on, but it was something about, you have like the protractor with the pencil, that's a nerd switchblade. <laughs> yeah. God, I remember those, yeah. Uh, this one, I want to save this one for last because I know you're going to have some thoughts. Um, I read that you're a music lover, so if you had a theme song, what would it be? 
question. Okay, I already have an answer to this. This is great. It would be the Dirt Bombs cover of Ode to a Black Man. I love that song so much. Like they, I mean, there's that one, but then there's another Dirt Bombs song, I'm Saving Myself for Nichelle Nichols. That's also my theme song. It's like a minute long, and it's so cool. Mick Taylor and the Dirt Bombs are like uh, one of my favorite bands, period. I mean, mine's is just instrumentals. It's just, what wrestler's theme can I put on real quick? <laughs> just pull up to like Razor Ramon's theme. Um, now, this is on the other flip side of music. If, if you don't have like a playlist per se, because I know that everyone doesn't use Spotify or even do playlists, but what is the most embarrassing song on your playlist right now? Like something that you're like, I like this, but I know it's embarrassing. Okay, well, I don't have a lot of guilty pleasures. I just have things that I enjoy. Uh, and by the way, there is actually a playlist soundtrack for the book on Spotify. Hell it's yeah. the same name as the novel. Uh, and all right, it's a little bit embarrassing that I really, truly, and without irony, adore two things. One is Christmas Don't Be Late by Alvin and the Chipmunks. I love that song. Uh, and another is all the works of Helmet and uh, the Deftones. Okay. Like, I, I love the Deftones so much because I really like when Chino Moreno sings real soft and then he sings real loud. And lucky for me, that's every single song. I, I remember I was really into that song, uh, it would change. Mm -hmm. I was like, hell yeah, man. <laughs> I was like, I want to grow a goatee out, man. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> um, what is your favorite springtime activity? Uh, my favorite springtime activity is walking my dog on Bayou St. John or on the Lafitte Greenway. Huh. It's just so nice, like that beautiful breeze, especially late at night, and uh, just chilling with my dog. Okay. I think mean, because it's like, I'll say this, I like because we're recording this in, in, in springtime. So, you know, just to date it. So it's definitely worth, you know, kind of discussing. Once it becomes hot, black people don't, well, they don't, they don't jam with the heat. Um, oh, I do. Well, you're, you're, you're a different black guy. Yeah, I, I do not <laughs> mind looking like a sweaty gas station hot dog for four months out of the year. I, I don't care. I'll, I'll say this. When I first did this sort of series of going to different cities and doing these interviews, I did it in Austin, Texas, right? That week it was 106 on average, and I was like, I regret my decision. That's a great time to get into Barton Springs, man. <laughs> All I know is I went to whatever the gas station that was closest to the apartment I was staying at and got like two jugs of distilled water. I finished one on the walk back, and I was oh, like, yeah. this is not going to work out well. I was like, I'm usually good with extremes, super cold, super hot, but it's just like, it's not my preference, though. True. I mean, like, it's not my preference, but I, I enjoy the heat over the cold. I love but, you cold. know, like, as a kid, like, I went camping in the Sahara Desert and all that stuff. Oh, you're just a wild boy. That's just and, <laughs> Well, that was a school trip when I was at the American uh, Cooperative School of Tunis. Yeah. Um, but it was also wonderful. Okay, now here's the, here's the main event, main event, main event question. And... What is your hottest pop culture take? My hottest pop culture take. Because I think everyone has has one that um, you know that just comes to mind or what have you. I could I could curve it in a way to make it specific because pop culture is pretty broad. 
Yeah, you know I mean, but yeah, I could say comics. I could say movies. I could say novels. All right. Well, if we're gonna if we're gonna get into deep deep nerdery, deep nerd. Yes, let's do it. That's a type of house music, by the way. I'm gonna say this: <laughs> the Avengers versus JLA crossover is responsible for the Scarlet Witch's insanity in the 616. Yeah. That's where she discovered chaos magic. That's when she started altering reality seriously, and it broke her mind. And I think it, it ultimately led to her wiping out most of the mutants. And it goes specifically back to that crossover, and no one ever mentions it. See? Right now, we got it on tape. We got it on wax. We captured that. Indeed. And, you know, Alex Jennings captured that. So with that, um, one, I want to thank you for coming on to this podcast, spending some time with me here in, in sweet New Orleans. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, and um, I want to um, invite and encourage you to share with the listeners um, final thoughts, um, website, social media, where folks can buy the book, all of that good stuff. The floor is yours. Well, uh, the book is available uh, wherever books are sold. Um, and uh, there's a great, great group of bookstores here in New Orleans that if you haven't visited yet, you should. Uh, Tubby and Coo's Mid-City Bookshop uh, over near where I live is wonderful. Candace Huber is just fantastic, and they've been doing great things in the field. Blue Cypress Books, also a fantastic bookshop. Uh, that's over in the Riverbend on Oak Street. And uh, they've been wonderful to me as well. And then, of course, Baldwin & Co. that, uh, that we just went by. Um, and other than that, I guess what I'll say is this. If you are wondering whether you have anything worth creating or worth saying, err on the side of yes. Because ultimately, that's not necessarily yours to determine. Um, just put it out there. That's great. Um, yeah, social media? Website? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Magic Negro, M-A-G-I-C-K Negro, uh, after, the, after the SF trope. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on uh, Facebook as well. Uh, it's just Alex Jennings. And uh, yeah, that, that's where I can be found. Well, there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Alex Jennings for coming on to the podcast. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there's art, culture, maybe a little bit of magic. And around your neck of the woods, you're just going to look for it. <laughs>